The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Lectures on the Politics of God and the Politics of Man Lecture 10 Socialism Part 2 in the same year that the Catholic Times reported Cardinal Rodriguez's ill-informed views on the nature and history of capitalism, the British publisher Continuum reissued a book on ethics by someone described as an outstanding Catholic intellectual. The blurb on the back of the book stated that the author, and I quote, took Christianity to be deeply subversive of capitalism, since it, that is to say Christianity, declares as possible the, to us, improbable prospect that people might live together without war or domination or antagonism, but by unity in love. Unquote. The author comments on the Eighth Commandment, and again I quote, You shall not steal. Certainly the most misunderstood of all the commandments. It has nothing to do with property and its so-called rights. What it refers to is stealing men, taking away their freedom to enslave them. It is a curious irony that in the name of this commandment we have built up a whole theory of the sacredness of possessions, of objects, a theory that has led to the wholesale enslavement of men, the very thing the commandment in fact denounces. Unquote. This is truly astonishing. One wonders whether this outstanding Catholic intellectual ever read a word of 20th century history. Was it the ideology of capitalism that enslaved and slaughtered millions in the concentration camps of Hitler and Stalin? When and where has capitalism led to the wholesale enslavement of men? And since when has socialism ever accomplished the prospect of men living together without war and domination? Socialism was responsible for the worst atrocities of the 20th century. Millions died in Hitler's and Stalin's pogroms and persecutions, and the record of their disciples in the third world is equally bad. Least of all do socialists have any right to speak of their beliefs ending war and oppression. Socialism, whether it has been the National Socialism of Hitler, the International Socialism of Stalin, or the Cultural Revolution of Mao Zedong, has been responsible for the worst wars and campaigns of oppression, enslavement and mass murder that the world has ever seen. Igor Shavarovich, an internationally renowned mathematician and Russian dissident under the Soviet regime, argued that inequality and slavery are at the heart of the socialist ideal and not merely the unforeseen consequences of its imperfect practical outworking, despite socialism's appeal to equality and freedom. This is what he says, quote, Proceeding from a critique of a given society, accusing it of injustice, inequality and lack of freedom, 
socialism proclaims in the systems where it is expressed with the greatest consistency a far greater injustice, inequality and slavery. Unquote. Yet here we are again with so-called Christians and clergymen promoting socialism as a Christian ideal. These outstanding intellectuals seem to be living on a different planet from the rest of mankind. The ideology behind Hitler's Third Reich and Stalin's Soviet Russia was not capitalism. It was socialism. Which mass-murdering political regimes of the 20th century, or any other century for that matter, were motivated by the ideology of capitalism? The Christian concept of intellectual honesty and integrity, indeed the very concept of truth, seems to be entirely foreign to the prophets of socialism, Christian or otherwise, and we should not expect anything else. Truth has always been the first victim of socialist propaganda and socialist politics. Socialist utopias have always been pursued by means of lies, deceit, persecution, oppression, enslavement of the people and mass murder. Are we to expect anything else from people who believe that God's law can be set aside so easily? If the Eighth Commandment can be set aside so easily by socialists, it should not surprise us that the others, including the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill, can be set aside as well. But what are we to make of Christians who say that the Eighth Commandment refers to slavery and has, quote, nothing to do with property and its so-called rights, unquote. Is slavery really the handmaid of capitalism? Such an argument may make for good rhetoric, but it is difficult to substantiate historically. Was it not the industrialised Western capitalist countries that abolished slavery? And was it not the most advanced industrial, that is to say capitalist country, Britain, that first abolished and outlawed slavery? The same kind of anti-capitalist mentality colours Ronald Siegel's analysis of the contrast between the Atlantic slave trade and Islamic slavery. While acknowledging that in fact Islamic slavery was no more compassionate in its treatment of slaves than the Atlantic slave trade, he still claims that Islamic slavery was, and I quote, overall more benign, in part because the values and attitudes promoted by religion inhibited the very development of a Western-style capitalism with its effective subjugation of people to the priority of profit, unquote. Of course, Seagal does not tell us what purpose the Islamic slave trade served if it was not profit, nor does he say what other influences played a part in inhibiting the development of a Western-style capitalism in Islamic societies. He does say that in the Islamic empire of the 9th century, and I quote again, the urban rich bought up large tracts of land for investment or prestige from minor landowners ruined by taxes and debt and evicted the peasants employed on them. Slaves and hired workers from among the landless would have supplied the necessary labour, unquote. And that, again I quote, slaves were at the bottom of the social order, inferior to all who at least had their freedom, unquote. Nevertheless, Segal does not hesitate to claim that the condition of Muslim slaves was more benign than that of slaves in the Western colonies because, at least in part, Islamic religion inhibits the development of Western-style capitalism. Capitalism, apparently, is evil per se, and no one benefits from it except the entrepreneurs and the industrialists. 
Yet the populations of Western nations enjoy higher standards of living and general welfare than those of non-capitalistic and anti-capitalist nations, including those of the fabulously wealthy modern Islamic oil states. The blindingly obvious facts of economic life for the great mass of mankind both in the modern world and throughout history demonstrate the superiority of the capitalist economic system, which produces greater economic and social benefits for all in society compared with other forms of economic organisation, which tend to share out the poverty for the vast majority while allocating greater wealth to a relatively few rich exploiters. Despite these facts, Capitalism is regularly vilified as the epitome of an evil system of economic exploitation of the poor by the rich. But if this is so, we must ask why it is that the ordinary people of Western capitalist nations flourish with higher standards of living and welfare and greater levels of economic equality than people in non- and anti-capitalist societies, which have the poorest, most downtrodden and exploited populations in the world. Of course, the influence of Christian values on Western societies accounts for the much greater concern for the poor and downtrodden and the value placed on the individual in these societies. My point is not that capitalism has produced these values, but that Christian values underpinned both the greater respect for human life evident in Western societies and the development of the Western capitalist economic system. The popular anti-capitalist mythologies of socialism bear no relation to the real world. It was the Christian capitalist nations that abandoned and then outlawed slavery, not the Islamic world, where slavery is still practised, that is to say, where people are still bought and sold for profit, notwithstanding any supposed benign influence of Islamic religion on this practice. And among Christian nations, it is the Protestant and ex-Protestant nations that have the highest standards of living and welfare compared with Roman Catholic and ex-Roman Catholic countries. It is of course widely recognised that it was for religious reasons, that is to say the values and attitudes promoted by the Christian religion, that slavery was brought to an end in the Christian capitalist nations of the West. If the influence of religion in Islamic countries was so favourable to slaves in comparison to the harsh treatment meted out to them in Western societies, as Sigel argues, we must wonder why it is that this did not lead to the abolition of slavery by Islamic countries. The reality, however, is that it was in the Christian West that slavery was outlawed. Islam still practices slavery. But there are also economic reasons for the rejection of slavery in a capitalist society. Slavery is an economically irrational and ineffective means of producing wealth. Max Weber defined capitalism of the distinctively Western kind as, and I quote, the rational capitalistic organisation of formerly free labour, unquote. According to Weber, and again I quote, only suggestions of this were found outside Western economies. Unquote. By comparison, the reintroduction of forced labour, that is to say slavery, was part and parcel of Marxist communist economic theory and practice. According to Nikolai Bukharin, and I quote, proletarian compulsion in all its forms, from execution by shooting, 
to labour conscription is, no matter how paradoxical this sounds, a method for the elaboration of communist humanity from the human material of the capitalist epoch. Unquote. Although Marxist communist theory acknowledged that under the capitalist economic organisation of society, forced labour, that's to say slavery, was economically inefficient and unproductive, it maintained that such slavery became necessary and productive in the communist society. The obsession with socialism by Christians is not confined to Roman Catholics, however. In the 20th century, Protestants also became enamoured of socialist ideology, at least in Britain and Europe. This can be seen at many levels, both officially and unofficially. For example, a former Anglican Archbishop of Liverpool, David Shepherd, argued in his book, Biased to the Poor, that justice should be biased to the poor. Yet scripture specifically forbids those whose office it is to administer public justice from exercising such a bias. See Exodus chapter 23 verse 3 and Leviticus 19 verse 15. Shepherd acknowledged that such a bias involves more than the biblical injunction that the wealthy in society should help those who are genuinely poor by exercising charity. He says, and I quote, The call for justice jars on many ears. To those who broadly believed in the status quo to be a just one, it seemed more wounding than a demand for charity or welfare. But I want to press the point about justice and about more equal opportunities for all to make real choices about their destiny. That will mean the shift of powers and resources. Unquote. But any shift of resources, that is to say, redistribution of wealth from one class to another in society, that is not the result of voluntary decisions on the part of those from whom the resources are redistributed, for example through trade or charity. In other words, any shift of resources that is achieved by force is called theft in the Bible, even when such force is exercised by the state. Compare Leviticus chapter 25 verse 23, Numbers 36 verse 7 and Ezekiel 46 verse 18 with 1 Kings 21 verses 1 to 19. Such theft is not excused by the needs of the thief, though neither does this fact relieve the wealthy of their responsibility to help the genuine poor. Another and rather extreme example of this attitude was the case of the Anglican priest who claimed that shoplifting from large superstars is not theft and that such activity helps to effect a badly needed redistribution of economic resources in society. The Times reported the priest as stating that superstars are, and I quote, places of evil and temptation, unquote. This was not the first time that a clergyman had decided that the way to deal with temptation is to give in to it, nor will it be the last, but the reasons given by this clergyman for his views on shoplifting were more ideological, involving a religious perspective that is socialist, not Christian. The Bible forbids theft and requires a thief to make restitution to his victim plus compensation of between a fifth and five times the value of the goods stolen, depending on the nature of the theft. See Exodus chapter 22 verses 1 and 4, Leviticus chapter 6 verses 2 to 5 and Numbers chapter 5 verses 6 to 8. 
If socialism is a biblical ideal, what is the Eighth Commandment for? For socialists of all types and in all ages, it is private property that is seen as the cause of human misery and its abolition as the only means of eradicating injustice in society. According to Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, and I quote, The theory of the communists may be summed up in a single sentence. Abolition of private property. Unquote. Dom Allegor Marie Deschamps, an 18th century French Benedictine monk and utopian socialist thinker who had an influence on Diderot and Rousseau and is considered in some respects to be a precursor of Hegel and Feuerbach, Engels and Marx, is another good example. But for Deschamps, the very idea of God is, says Igor Shavarovich, and I quote, a product of definite social relations based on private property. Religion did not exist before these relations took shape and it will no longer exist when they are destroyed. Unquote. According to Deschamps, however, not only will all land and property come under common ownership in the utopian socialist state of the future, but all women as well. Sexual communism is a common theme in socialist ideology, whether it is the communism of the ancient world, for example Plato's Republic, the medieval heretical sects or modern Marxist communism. Despite the claims of the kleptomaniac Anglican priest already mentioned, the belief that private property is evil in principle and the real cause of mankind's misfortune and suffering is in stark contrast to the moral teaching of the Bible which condemns theft. Private property is not only sanctioned by the law of God, its preservation is a fundamental principle of biblical justice, as is the right of private and privileged transfer of wealth to others, for example inheritance. Though not limited to it, the biblical prohibition on theft applies also to the form of private ownership most abominated by socialists, ownership of land. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels called for, and I quote, the abolition of private property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes, unquote. According to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and I quote again, the first man who, having enclosed a piece of ground, bethought himself of saying, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the real founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes, might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling in the ditch and crying to his fellows, Beware of listening to this impostor. You are undone if you once forget that the fruit of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. Unquote. The biblical laws on land tenure contradict this immoral socialist principle in the most direct manner. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 14 quote, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbour's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. Unquote. Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 17 Quote, Cursed be he that removeth his neighbour's landmark. Unquote. 
The people were required to accept and abide by this principle. Quote, and all the people shall say Amen. Unquote. King Ahab's state-authorised confiscation of Naboth's property, his inheritance, was severely punished by God. See 1 Kings chapter 21. Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? complained Jezebel the queen. In other words, as king do you not have the right of eminent domain, that is to say, sovereignty over all property in the kingdom with the right of expropriation? Scripture condemns this doctrine, which rulers and states from antiquity to modern times have considered so essential, so sacred, and which reveals so clearly their idolatry of political power. The practice of eminent domain is contrary to God's law and therefore immoral, and condemned as oppression by scripture. Quote, Moreover, the prince shall not take of the people's inheritance by oppression to thrust them out of their possessions, but he shall give his son's inheritance out of his own possessions, that my people be not scattered, every man from his possession. Unquote. Ezekiel chapter 46 verse 18. The cause of man's misery, according to the Bible, is not private property, but sin, the transgression of God's law, which requires man to respect and preserve the private property of his neighbour. Of course, it is true that the Bible also teaches that wealth is a gift of God and that we are the stewards of what we own. It is our duty to use the wealth that God has given us stewardship over in a way that conforms to the ethical standards revealed in Scripture, and this includes the showing of mercy and charity to those in need. But this is just the point. God has made me the steward of the resources he has put at my disposal, not someone else, and certainly not the state. For someone else to usurp my responsibility under God to exercise stewardship over the resources God has given me is a crime not only against me, but against God himself, because it is a transgression of his law and a denial of the social order that he has established for mankind in his word. This is no less the case when it is the state that usurps my God-given responsibility. It is this point that Christian socialists seem to miss altogether. Their idolatry of state power blinds them to the obvious. God has not granted the state stewardship over society's economic resources. The state has a legitimate but limited social function as a ministry of public justice, and it is authorised by scripture to collect taxes in order to enable it to fulfil this specific function, and this alone. See Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 6. It is not authorised by scripture to collect taxes for any other purpose. Furthermore, socialism has always shown itself hostile to Christian values. What socialist government has ever upheld the rights of God, defended institutions like the Christian family, preserved Christian ethics in medicine and sexuality, passed legislation that enables a man to leave an inheritance to his children, rather than confiscating his children's inheritance? Socialist governments have been inimical to all these values from the beginning. Least of all do socialist governments uphold righteousness. 
Socialism is an engine of social revolution that seeks to overturn everything that Christianity stands for. True, many socialist politicians claim to be Christian. But the Lord Jesus Christ taught us that it is by the fruit that they bear, that is to say by their works, that we should recognise his disciples, not by their profession. See Matthew chapter 7 verse 16. Politicians who proclaim themselves Christians, yet who stand against Christian values and deny the ethics of God's law, should not be accepted as believers. Rather, they should be seen for what they are, social revolutionaries who are in rebellion against God and his kingdom. Of course, it would be absurd to argue that free market capitalism is the answer to man's problems, that poverty itself can be eradicated completely by adopting the capitalist form of economic organisation. The complete eradication of poverty is an impossible goal to achieve and even Jesus recognised this fact. See Matthew chapter 25 verse 11 and Mark chapter 14 verse 7. The reason for this is that ultimately poverty has a spiritual cause. It is part of the curse for sin under which mankind labours though this does not necessarily mean that poverty in individual cases is the result of specific sins committed by the individuals involved. Compare John chapter 9 verses 1 to 3. Under these conditions it is unrealistic and moreover idolatrous to expect the capitalist form of economic organisation to eradicate poverty completely. Such an expectation implies that capitalism is a means of social salvation. But this does not mean that society should not adopt a capitalist form of economic organisation, merely that its adoption per se would not solve all the problems of poverty. The fact that capitalism does not solve all the problems of poverty does not mean that capitalism is savage any more than the fact that socialism has not solved the problem of poverty means that socialism is savage. Although, of course, socialism is savage, as the history of virtually all socialist states has demonstrated, and is morally unacceptable for this and other reasons. The issue of poverty is much more complex than that. However, it must be recognised that where capitalism has been underpinned by a Christian worldview and ethic in society, far greater progress practically towards the eradication of poverty has been achieved than under any other system of economic organisation. And as already mentioned, this is the case both in absolute terms and relatively. That is to say, capitalism, when underpinned by a Christian worldview and ethic, not only tends to raise the lowest classes out of absolute poverty, but also produces much greater levels of economic equality within society than any other form of economic organisation. This is no accident. Ultimately, capitalism only works properly when it is underpinned by a Christian moral ethic and worldview. The capitalist method of production can be imitated for sure, but eventually, without a Christian foundation, the distinctive kind of rational economic activity that led to economic growth and greater wealth for all in the first world societies, which is what the term capitalism usually describes historically, will eventually deteriorate into the kind of economic activity that Max Weber described as, and I quote, 
predominantly of an irrational and speculative character or directed to acquisition by force, above all acquisition of booty, whether directly in war or in the form of continuous fiscal booty by exploitation of subjects, unquote. A description that unfortunately increasingly rings true for much of the economy of modern Britain as a consequence of the abandonment of Christian ethics both by the private sector and government. Nevertheless, it was only in the religious context of a Christian and in particular a Protestant society that modern capitalism first developed. It should not come as a surprise to learn, therefore, that globally capitalist societies are much wealthier, both in absolute terms and per capita, produce much greater levels of economic equality, have much greater individual freedom and are more likely to have representative governments than socialist societies. Nevertheless, we must insist that the free market is not a theory of everything and that to treat it as such is to reduce the whole of life to the economic aspect to seek the meaning of life in the created order itself and therefore a form of idolatry. And this is the problem with the godless libertarianism that has flourished in recent years and to which the term capitalism has been quite misleadingly applied. But the choice is not between capitalism as a theory of everything and capitalism as a source of man's problems. Capitalism relates to one aspect of life, the economic, and therefore finds its proper function and purpose alongside other forms of human activity, all of which find their ultimate meaning in God's creative purpose for mankind. Free market capitalism, therefore, is a valid and correct way of organising society economically, but it can only function properly when due consideration is given to the other functions of man's life, and when it is not used to define human life in its totality. Historically, modern capitalism arose in societies where economics was not the defining feature of life, where the economy was only one aspect of human activity, and where a Christian worldview provided ultimate meaning and purpose for society as a whole. If free market economics has been divorced from this social context in the modern world, thereby distorting the true meaning of man's life, this does not mean that the capitalist form of economic organisation is evil per se. It means merely that sinful men have abused and idolised it. We must resist all such idolatry. But we must not throw out the baby with the bathwater. The capitalistic organisation of economic activity is the correct approach to one aspect of human life and therefore part of the answer to man's needs. But it can only function effectively and properly as part of the whole that God intends human society to be when it finds its context in relation to the other functions of man's life as God has ordered it by his word. Capitalism, therefore, is not in principle evil, even if it can be perverted for evil ends by sinful men, as is often the case. Socialism, by contrast, is evil in principle because it is predicated on the rejection of God's order for man's life, even if it is adopted as an ideal by men with good intentions. It is really a religion, not merely a form of economic organisation, because it functions as an all-embracing worldview. Speaking of the revolutionary attitude, 
Christopher Dawson said that the desire for, and I quote, the complete remodelling of society according to some ideal of social perfection belongs to the order of religion. It finds its only parallel in the past in movements of the most extreme religious type, like that of the Anabaptists in 16th century Germany and the Levellers and Fifth Monarchy men in Puritan England. And when we study the lives of the founders of modern socialism, the great anarchists and even some of the apostles of nationalist liberalism like Mazzini, we find at once that we are in the presence of religious leaders, whether prophets or heresiarchs, saints or fanatics. Behind the hard rational surface of Karl Marx's materialist and socialist interpretation of history, there burns the flame of an apocalyptic vision. For what was the social revolution in which he put his hope but a 19th century version of the day of the Lord in which the rich and the powerful of the earth should be consumed and the princes of the Gentiles brought low and the poor and disinherited should reign in a regenerated universe. So too Marx, in spite of his professed atheism, looked for the realisation of this hope, not like St Simon and his fellows idealist socialists, to the conversion of the individual and to human efforts towards the attainment of a new social ideal, but to the arm of the Lord, the necessary, ineluctable working out of eternal law, which human will and human effort are alike powerless to change or stay. But the religious impulse behind these social movements is not a constructive one. It is as absolute in its demands as that of the old religions, and it admits of no compromise with reality. Unquote. According to Sergei Bulgakov, and I quote, Socialism nowadays emerges not only as a natural area of social policy, but usually also as a religion, one based on atheism and the deification of man and man's labour, and on recognition of the elemental forces of nature and social life, and as the only meaningful principle of history. Unquote. Socialism reduces life to the economic aspect. It is, said Semyon Frank, and I quote, the religion of service to material interests, unquote. And therefore, it is idolatrous in principle. End of Lecture 10 Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. 
Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.